All right, ready, boss? I'm ready. I think you're the boss, though. Well, only in this. You're the boss, boss. I was going to say only in this arena, but that's not true. (laughs) (laughs) It isn't. Previously on Bad Heroes. For love, I would do anything. Her heart was a flutter, her senses gone blind. One look from her lover made everything fine. She stole from her clan, betrayed an old friend, crept off in the night, never heard from again. What did home feel like for you? It was cozy and lush, and there was always people talking. God, there was always music playing. In short, we're hunting curses for the queen so that she can build an army. I think we're helping her build an army to conquer more land, including my village. It's called the Essence of Malos. Without it, my village doesn't stand a chance. Somebody who I loved deeply manipulated me, and I helped them take the Essence of Malos from my village. You have that connection with your instrument, and you know that everyone born after your mistake will never have that. And you have no idea where it is. The last I know of it, I was leaving after realizing the damage that I've done, and I am probably a pretty bad hero if I do say so myself. I have to get it back. Hello, I'm here with Rev. Hey. <laughs> hey. <laughs> hey there, listeners. <laughs> Making full use of his deep voice. <laughs> and this episode is going to be Ira's solo episode, Ira's Level Up. This episode also will be dedicated to our cats. This episode, which is entirely about a cat having an adventure, will be dedicated to our little kitty cats. We lost two of our kitty babies this year, which given that it's mid-February means that it's been a very rough year. But yes, this little romp is for our kitty cats and for your kitty cats and for all kitty cats. So, Ira, how was your night with Nyx? Oh, how was my night? How was your night with Nyx? Oh, gosh. How was your first sleepover with Nyx? Well... I could tell you we didn't do a lot of sleeping. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that sounds lovely. How long do you think you stay with Nix and his family? Probably two nights. Two nights. Okay. So it's been four days since you were with your friends in the underground theater and Safira got the jump on you. And you have just spent two and a half days, two nights with Nix. You are saying goodbye outside of Nix's wooden cabin home. The stream beneath the grassy outcropping babbles quietly, and wildflowers surround the front door in pinks and purples. And he looks at you with big cat eyes. And his irises are that unnatural blue. Not blue like the sky, but blue like a bruise. And he's cold to the touch where your hands meet, but I think you've gotten used to those eccentricities over the last few days maybe they're even cozy now and he looks at you very shyly and produces a gift he hands you a package wrapped in paper and says 
I think this may fit you now. You've changed shape since I saw you last. And he he sort of like grabs your shoulders. Look at these shoulders. Mm, handsome. Try this. Try it on. I, I took some links out here and there, so you're not swimming in it. Oh, Nix, you, you didn't have to do that. This is really sweet. You open it up, and it's a chain shirt. You can tell when you unwrap it and you hold it in your hands that it's made of a very fine material, something maybe you haven't seen before. It has this beautiful, silvery, glistening shimmer to it. It feels like steel, almost, but if steel was feather light. And sure enough, you put it on, and Nyx is taller and wider than you are. But between his adjustments and your growth in the arms and shoulders, it fits. Oh my gosh, this is... This feels great. It feels amazing. I mean, gosh, thank you so much, Nix. And Ira goes in for a big hug with the shirt on. He hugs you. It's mithril, light enough to move in and to cast in. It kept me safe for a long time hunting. I hope it will carry you safely through your next journey. It absolutely will. I, this is... Amazing. Thank you so much. As Ira pulls away, he has his hands on Nix's neck and just kind of like strokes behind his neck. Ira, you've talked about Jasmine. She was your first love, right? Right. It's only been about six months since you were with her. Has there been anyone else besides Nix? Or is he the second person that you felt this way for? Yeah, I think Nyx would be the second person. I think I think Ira has had like, you know, girlfriends and boyfriends when they were growing up through school and, you know, had little relationships, like playground relationships, but they were never like romantic. They were more just like flirtatious. Yeah. Not like a great love. Right. right. Jasmine was a great love, and I think Nick's that relationship is becoming a great love. I think you feel a lot of things as you're you're looking at him. And he says, um, visit me soon. Hmm? I know you are bound to Sephira for one curse more, but he looks down a little shyly and says, I am at your service. I will come to you if you need me. Looking into Ira. No, Ira does not look into his looking own into eyes. Looking into his own eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Ira pulls out a mirror, checks himself out and says, God, I'm good looking. <laughs> Puts the mirror away, looks back at Nix. <laughs> and Ira, Ira looks into Nix's eyes and says, I'll be back as soon as I can and no need to send directions. I'll remember the way. When you parted from Nix... Above Obron's crumbling castle, you took your purple lipstick and you drew a heart on his palm. This big tiger pulls out a stick of red lipstick and draws a heart on your palm, grinning. That's sweet. <laughs> Where will you go now? What, what will you do? Ira kind of lingers with his palm open, looking at the red lipstick heart and slowly and gently closes his palm as he looks longingly at it and says, I have to find the essence of Melos. I need, I need to right my wrongs and give back 
what was taken to my pride. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to look, I'm going to search, no matter how far I need to go or who I need to talk to or if I need to fight. So that's what I'm doing. Nyx plants one last kiss on you and then says, I... I... Be careful. I will. How do you look for the essence of Melos? I think Ira walks down the path that leads to their house. He's walking away from it. And once he gets to be in the forest again and away from the house and he can't be seen by them, he opens up his shirt. There's a couple of buttons that he unbuttons, pulls out the chain that holds the seeker's pendant. And he kind of rubs it between his thumb and his finger and starts to think about the essence of Melos and his home. That's how he's going to find it. Okay. So the Seeker's Pendant, you bought it from Sogarim. You bought it in the capital. And it's a small pendant shaped like a compass. And when held, it points the user towards an object, a person, a destination that they most desire. It can't do it continuously, but it can do it for bursts. Unfortunately, this pendant was found in the discount bin, you know, because it's easily distracted by things like lust, hunger, exhaustion. So you hold up this pendant. You think about the essence of Melos. You think about what it did for your pride, what it gave the kits, a special connection with their instrument. Give me a will saving throw. Ah, good old Will. As you attempt to focus on the essence of Melos instead of getting distracted. <laughs> By activities. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. What'd you get? I rolled a nine. <laughs> okay. I rolled a three plus six. <laughs> Is my brain in the gutter right now? <laughs> yeah, so I think you stand out there in the forest for like 10 minutes looking at this compass, and it spins around and then resolutely points back at Nix's cabin. <laughs> I think I think Ira, like the first time that happens, it almost like chokes Ira because it just immediately like was like fling back towards Nix. And Ira's just like, no, not that. Hold on, hold on. Okay. <laughs> and he like walks a little bit more and just kind of like tries to get his focus on the essence of Melos and home. I think it takes you a while, but but you eventually get it. Or at least you hope that that's what's happening because the compass starts pointing away from Nix's house. Oh, finally. Thank you. <laughs> Nix's house is south of the capital. You are in a forest that, despite being in autumn, is still green, and the compass points you west. Do you follow it? Oh, yeah. All right, so... Not knowing where you're going, you follow the direction that the Seeker's Pendant leads you. How resolute is Ira to follow this compass? 
pretty resolute. I mean, that's his mission. Like he has time between when he has to be back at the Capitol. If he had any iota of not wanting to do this, he would have stayed with Nix or asked to stay with Nix. Right. Okay. So, Ira, you hike for two days. You have a tent and you have rations and you have a basic adventurer's gear. And it's not an unpleasant hike. You walk through the forest and eventually you find yourself leaving it. The trees of the forest that Nix calls home gradually give way to rolling grasslands with tall green and gold stalks of wild grass that reach your waist, swaying in the breeze. There's no road, but the land isn't difficult either. But it appears also to be empty. The landscape is dotted with darker shrubs, and the sky above seems vast and endless. Eventually, after two days of walking, you see something different. A lazy river winds across the countryside, shimmering in the sunlight. Its waters are slow moving enough that you could safely wade or swim across it. And on the other side, in the distance, you can just make out a lone building next to a small corral, surrounded by a wooden fence. And that building is where your compass is pointing you to. Yeah, I think Ira kind of squints in the distance to make sure it's not some kind of like mirage or something and puts his hand up to his eyes to shield the sun, but sees that it's a real building, kind of picks up his pace and heads towards it. Just to see like how you're looking after two days of hiking, give me a survival check. 22. Okay. I think you look like you would like to sleep in a bed, but besides that, <laughs> I think you're doing pretty good. Yeah. So do you approach this little house? I do. I think I was excited to finally come across something, mm -hmm. but also just kind of like listening around. You got your kitty ears on swivel. Yeah. So as you approach this house, before you reach the front door, you pass this corral. You think that maybe like in this corral, you will find sheep or pigs or cattle or maybe horses. That is not what you find. Oh, what do I find? <laughs> Inside this corral, you see 15 or so three-foot-tall kangaroo rats. And some of them are outfitted with little saddles. Um, I'm sorry, hold on. What are kangaroo rats? These are a real thing. I mean, they're not three feet tall, but they're very cute. I need everyone to stop and go look up kangaroo rat. Oh, my God. It basically looks like if you took a hamster, you gave it massive back feet, and then a super long tail that almost looks like a lion's tail. This looks unreal. <laughs> I know. Aren't they cute? They are cute. Okay. They're adorable. They're this like really- Are they terrified of me because I am a literal cat? Wow. That's a very good point. <laughs> did you that not did think about not that? occur to me? <laughs> I'm just like poking my well, head in. <laughs> <laughs> they have these big glassy black eyes and they're this like brown tan color. So they blend in really well with the grass. But the thing is, you're about four, five or so. Yeah. They're three feet tall. Okay. So you're actually like not that much bigger than they are. Those are big. Yeah. They're not big in real life like that, right? No. Okay. In real life, they're the size of hamsters <laughs> with big feet. <laughs> but these are three feet tall and a couple of them have saddles on them. And they don't look scared of you at all. Okay. Uh, I mean, I think Iroh just stares in confusion and like... <laughs> Half like on, half like what? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, before you get a chance to 
knock on the front door then as you just gawk at these kangaroo rats. The front door swings open. And you see a goblin woman, also about three feet tall, with green skin and big ears and a long purple-blue duster jacket. And she looks at you in surprise and puts a hand on her hip and says, Can I help you? Uh, oh, uh, hello. Um, hi, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to just trespass on your property. I am searching for something, and, and I have been led to your place, and, um, yeah, what's, I'm Ira, what is your name? She raises a big bushy eyebrow at you and points to the sign that is in front of the corral that says Mia's Magnificent Mounts. Mia. I'm guess I'm gonna guess that's you. That is some stellar reading comprehension. I am I am quite the detective. <laughs> I'm afraid if you're looking for anything that isn't a kangaroo rat to ride, and I think you're a little big for that, kitty cat. <laughs> I can't really help you. Uh Okay. I I understand. Yeah, I might be a little too big for a kangaroo rat. But can I ask you if you've heard of or come across anything that I'm looking for? She looks you over and you can see sort of that hardness on her face break a little bit and says, uh, you look like you've been on the road for a while. Why don't you come sit and stay a spell, huh? Oh, thanks. Yeah, I have been walking for a couple of days. Come on in. She steps aside to let you inside. But as she does so, she gives the crossbow at her hip a little threatening pat. I think by the time you get there, evening is coming. Mia doesn't know about the essence of Melos. She tells you she's never heard of it. And she's sorry. But she does offer you a place to stay for the night and talks to you, talks to you through the evening. And it turns out that Mia actually is a really spectacular storyteller. Everything that she tells you is unbelievably funny and clever. And even when she's telling you stories about a kangaroo rat that's outside that you know is okay, her her favorite, by the way, he's missing an ear, even though you know he's okay because you saw him an hour ago, when she tells a story about the time that a basilisk almost got him, you are absolutely on the edge of your seat. Because she is so good at telling stories. The evening draws on and you are sitting by a fire outside, watching the kangaroo rats tuck down for the night. And Mia, over her cup of tea, says, All right, so you're a bard. Let's hear it then. Tell me about a far off place, huh? Transport me transport you uh i mean i can tell you about my home it's uh i mean well it's green there's a lot of trees and she she's listening but she leans back in her chair and folds her arms and raises an eyebrow (laughs) there's a lot of trees and cat folk everywhere uh sometimes it's hot but we don't really sweat so it's not a big deal um there's a lot of beaches because it's an island I, i don't know it's just really beautiful 
She slaps her knee. Not like that. No. Don't, don't tell me about it. Show it to me. Take your time. Slow down. Well, I don't have a picture. Uh... I think she looks at the drum that you carry, your purple drum, and she says, you can't rely on your instrument alone. You know, your word should carry it. The instrument is a bonus, something that helps. But your words alone should cast a spell. Okay. I think Ira kind of settles in his chair, closes his eyes, and he says, Well, my home is a beautiful island. It's surrounded by clear water. Um, It's pretty magical and turquoise filled with bright green trees and there's a thick forest uh, on the island. The sky is always blue and the sun is always shining. The beaches to the south are pretty sandy and they slope right into the sea. And on the north side of the island, the it's just a wall of cliffs that drop down right into the waves that are crashing against it. The breeze is always just right and the night it honestly feels like weightless as the heat starts to dissipate. And Ira opens his eyes and, and he's like, uh, how was that? She's smiling. That was good. That was better. And she closes her eyes and folds her arms and, and takes a deep breath and says, I can see it. Now, really take me there, Ira. Make me understand why that's the place I want to be. What does it feel like under your feet? What does it smell like? And she opens one eye and says, there's no hurry. I'm a captivated audience. Ira thinks for a second, and then he grabs his drum and, and holds it to his chest and settles back down into his chair, closes his eyes, and just remembers home. He loses the feeling of dry dirt beneath his feet, and he suddenly feels wet sand and the waves lapping against him, and, and he's, you know, just feeling his home again. And he says out loud, gentle waves are lapping against your feet and the sun is warming your face as you look out at the clear turquoise sea that surrounds my home island. You feel the crumbly soft sand beneath your feet as it gives way to velvety mud of forest. There's a tangle of living vines and winding branches that is stretching out in front of you and the lush leaves of palms and ferns are brushing against your fur. You're following a barely there footpath under a dense canopy of green. There's spotted frogs jumping out and croaking at you as you cross each other's paths. And then the forest opens up to a treehouse village 
and a sprawling pride of catfolk. All shades of fur, big and small, young and old. They're singing and teasing one another as they go about their day. Overhead, swinging rope bridges creak and sway under the pitter-patter of little kit feet as the young ones shriek and play. And though you've never been here before, it feels like home. When evening draws on, you can smell the sweetness of dew on leaves and there's spices brewing in pots as supper simmers. At night, it almost feels like you're floating on air as the heavy heat lifts from the ground. It's chased away by instruments and voices, by the melodies of the Clawstrike clan. Now I have been transported. Beautiful. Ira takes a little bow in his seat. She laughs and refills your tea. That's the power of stories, hmm? You weave a good story. Let the narrative work for you, not against you. And you can get anyone on your side. But to do that, first, you have to transport them. For example, sit back and let me tell you how fun riding a jumbo kangaroo rat is. And maybe tomorrow you'll help me move them. I think Ira just like nods his head and smiles and sits back and closes his eyes again, waiting to be transported. This person, Mia, is how you learn suggestion. Suggestion is a spell that you learn this level up where you make a suggestion to a creature you've already fascinated. She is part of how you learn to do that. I think you spend the next day helping her with the kangaroo rats. And when your chores have finished and you've helped her out in exchange for the food and the bed and the tea and the conversation, you lift up the seeker's pendant again and It points away. Like it keeps pointing west or it points to a different direction? It points south, following the river, the lazy river that runs past her place. It points south along the river towards the sea. The river's like, yeah, I'm not lazy. (laughs) The river's like, I work very hard. Do you know how hard it is to carry all these fish around? I literally am always running. I have never in my life sat still. (laughs) Shut your face. (laughs) Okay, so it's pointing south along the river. I think Ira dusts himself off from the chores of the day that he helped Mia with and gives Mia a nice long hug and says goodbye and says, well, I got to be going, but I really appreciate everything you've taught me. I've always played instruments my whole life and I became really good at that but like I never I never thought about how words can can be music too so thank you so much and I hope we cross paths again she gives you a hug and then she kind of pushes you off and brushes you off and says yeah it wasn't anything you come back this way though and you stop by huh I will and he uh nods at her as he turns to to leave 
And I think her favorite kangaroo rat, who is the biggest with the missing ear, gives your tail a little nibble as you walk away. And you head down that river, yeah? Yep. Okay. Now I want another survival check on this one. (sighs) Okay. Already? For sort of how this leg of the journey goes. Damn. (laughs) Uh, 12. Eight plus four. It goes okay. (laughs) (laughs) It goes okay. Give me a will check. Come on, will. It's eight plus six, so it's 14. Okay. And this is how Ira died. (laughs) (laughs) I think this leg of the journey is really hard for a couple of reasons. One, because the terrain gets harder the further south you go. And two, because it is hard for you to hold the image of what you are trying to achieve in your mind. In the first place that the compass pointed you to, that person, Mia, and you're pretty sure she was telling the truth, didn't know anything about the essence of Malos, didn't know anything at all. And I think the compass just starts whirring around, pointing at different places. I think Ira is just like, at some point, he kind of just has like this like spell of frustration and kind of starts going in different directions wherever the pendant is going and realizes that it's just, it's not locked in on what he wants and kind of just sits down and takes a break, but is like really frustrated, almost to the verge of tears. Yeah. I think he's starting to feel like not only is he not going in the right direction, he may be going further away from the thing that he's seeking. And also he might be getting lost. Like he doesn't know where the nearest town is. He doesn't know where the nearest, you know, anything is. And he's, he, he doesn't have uh, endless rations. He's tired. He's just like feeling a little broken and he's, he's kind of getting worried. I think there are some points in this leg of the journey where you realize that maybe this wasn't super well (laughs) thought out. (laughs) And the idea of following an artifact that was in the discount bin for being unreliable to try to find an irreplaceable artifact with complete, that could be anywhere in the world. And you by yourself are just walking down a river. I think you're about a day and a half into walking down this river when you realize that, like, holy shit, maybe this was a really bad idea. And then he pulls out his hat of wisdom. And the hat is like, what the fuck, dude? <laughs> okay, you 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 pull this hat over your head. You yeah, pull this I purple think, hat over your head. I think Ira is like, okay, I need to, like, I need to decide right now whether I want to keep going or I need to turn back. You put this hat on. You think about continuing on the path that you're following. And then you think about going home. Home being? Capital. Yeah. The capital of Ire. Not really home, but whether I need to go back to the capital. Because mm-hmm. home would be the island. Yeah, and I think you you maybe have a fear that like, is that where the compass is pointing you? Because it's pointing south. Huh. And your home is south. Yeah. And you are a little turned around, but you do know that this river leads to the sea. So I think you have a couple moments where you're worried like, Am I going to follow this compass to the edge of the continent? And then, of course, you can't walk on water. So what are you going to do? That's what you think. (laughs) Well. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Okay. The voice of reason. A floppy purple wizard's hat with dangling beads and a mouth cut into it. 
Once daily when donned, it grants a plus five wisdom modifier. And we'll explain in painstaking detail why the hero's current bad idea is unwise. Okay, so you put this hat on and in your moment of doubt, you wonder what the fuck you are doing and you hold the compass in your hand and you hear the voice of the hat say, focus, look at it, really focus, focus on why, why you need what you need, why you're doing what you're doing. Ira thinks of all the the kids that he would sing with and play with and teach and realizing that like all of that hinges on this essence of Melos that a lot of the lore and stories in his clan are surrounding that and now those stories that used to be full of hope and inspiration and pride he can only imagine as as they're telling these stories to the kids that should have been given the power of this artifact, you know, now it's sad and, you know, now it's a, it's a story of something lost of betrayal. Yeah. And something lost. You picture those kids, maybe even particular faces of children that, you know, sometime in the last six months turned 10. And normally when they turn 10, that ritual of getting that blessing from the essence of Melos would be part of their birthday. And you know that now it isn't. Mm -hmm. And I think you picture that. And I think you picture imagining what it would be like to bring them an artifact like that so that they still get that late, but they still get it. Give me another will saving throw and add five from the hat. 15 plus six plus five, which would be 26. All right. So you hold this compass, you have this hat on your head, and this tiny compass in your hand stops spinning. And it points very firmly down the river. Okay. And I think Ira is like feeling like he's been given the affirmation he needs to continue and feels like this is the right direction. You know, the pendant in this moment is doing what it was made to do. This is right. Okay. So you follow that pendant. You follow it south downriver. And the nights are long and the days are hard because you're camping alone on the side of this river. And has Ira ever really been alone? No, no, he hasn't. I mean, he's always been surrounded by his clan and, you know, whether it was his parents and siblings or other cat folk, just always surrounded. And then as he got older and, and started a relationship with Jasmine, they were always together, like they were inseparable. Only time he was really alone was maybe when he first got to Vire and he was busking but you know then he was he was still surrounded but just by like people he didn't really know and then pretty soon he was kind of taken into the fold with this this group of bad heroes your friends Gideon Tonrir Riva yes so this this may be the first time in Ira's life where he has ever actually properly been alone and i think the journey to Mia's was hard because it was a few days but you were still close enough to Nyx. You had this feeling that if you really needed him, you could find a way to get to him. And 
It doesn't feel like that anymore. Hmm. You are far enough from the capital. You are far enough from the other people that you know. You are far enough from Nyx and even Mia and anyone that I think the nights are really scary. Yeah, I was feeling very untethered. There is something uniquely terrifying about the dark when you are truly properly by yourself. And I think you feel that for the very first time. Mm. But with that will-saving throw, you tough it out. You keep going because you know that what you are doing, even if you don't understand exactly what you are doing, you know it is important. From the time you leave Mia's house to the time the river draws close to the sea and opens up into a mangrove swamp, you spend about two and a half days. And by the time you reach that swamp, which is all tangled root systems and brackish water and buzzing insects, it is now truly hard to walk. To get anywhere fast, you need a boat. And luckily you find someone renting them. You find a tall, lanky human man that has little, truly shoddy looking rowboats for sale. Is it Bob's Beautiful Boats? It's Bob's Beautiful Boats. <laughs> Bob's Beautiful Refurbished Boats. And Bobberton offers you a beautiful refurbished boat. Uh, it has what looks like multiple holes in it that have been plugged with corks. Nice. It's like taped together in a couple different places. And uh, he he offers you one of these fine boats for a very reasonable three gold, which is actually a bit of a racket for a piece of garbage. <laughs> But he's cornered the market, I assume. There's nobody else selling boats at the, the edge of the sea. He has absolutely cornered the market. <laughs> he also offers to sell you uh, what he calls a bappin' stick for the crocodiles. I'm sorry, the crocodiles? The crocodiles. What does this bappin' stick look like? Is it, is it literally just a stick that I can pick up from... The side of the lake? It is literally just a very long stick. For how much? That you can bap crocodiles with. <laughs> an additional gold. He offers you a bapping stick for an additional gold. Finest stick in the land. Best stick. Bapping. Save me many times this stick. He probably picked this stick up like this morning. Yeah. Best bapping stick. And there's a little there's a little pot labeled bapping sticks. And there's like five sticks in it. I think Ira is going to take him up on the boat but not the bapping stick. Okay. <laughs> He's going to spend a little time on the edge of the shore, maybe looking for his own free bapping stick. <laughs> okay. So you, all right. So you find a reasonably good bapping stick. <laughs> so the compass points resolutely into this swamp. And this little boat merchant doesn't seem to have any idea why you would be there. In fact, you get the impression that like nobody ever comes here because it doesn't seem like there's anything to come here for. It's been about two and a half days, and when you reach the end of that day, evening is creeping on. But the compass right now is pointing very resolutely into the swamp. Do you follow it at night, or do you wait for the day? I think I was going to wait for the daytime. Okay. Can't bap crocodiles if we can't see them. <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah, I think you look into that swamp, and... As the evening draws on, maybe you have a torch or maybe just your campfire as you camp at the edge of the swamp and you can actually see eyes reflecting back at you from the water. And I think you know that that was a good choice. Good, good and great. 
So the next morning, you board your little boat and wave goodbye to all the bapping sticks and your your new friend. <laughs> and you head into the mangrove swamp. And Ira, I don't think you've ever been anywhere like this. No. No. Uh, <laughs> it's a little reminiscent of home, but not really. Yeah, it's... It's like sticky and hot like home, but it's like dark and yeah. dank unlike home. It's like your home in that the water in the daylight is like this crystal green blue. And the treetops are green and sprawling and create this like really almost impenetrable canopy. But the brackish water is this mix of fresh and salt water. And the plants that thrive there in that condition is like nothing you've ever seen. The root systems of the mangrove trees are wound together in places almost like solid ground, like threads crisscrossing to make fabric. It's like a strange maze, and it would be incredibly easy to get turned around in this maze of roots and water and green. Because as soon as you're in it, properly in it, you can't see out of it anymore. And I think it feels like the compass is the only thing standing between you and getting completely lost. Give me another survival check. Whew. This is Ira's big adventure, this. God damn it. Oh no. <laughs> I rolled a four plus four. That's eight. <laughs> okay. All right. You head into the swamp. And as you are heading into the swamp, you hear early in the morning, this like eerie howling sound. And it takes you a while to realize that it's it's monkeys. It's howler monkeys. And they sound like unnerving. It's a really unnerving, eerie sound. But I think you're relieved when you see that they're, they're just monkeys. It's okay. But you haven't seen any crocodiles yet. Not in the daylight. And as you head deeper in, I think there's a moment where you are sitting there looking at your compass as it points deeper in, and every time you see it spin, you get a little afraid because what if it's just taking you in circles? What if it's lost? What if it's wrong? What if it has no idea where you are? And I think as you are having trouble keeping the faith that you are going the right direction, as it starts flicking around, that's when you notice that a couple of the logs that are nearest to you aren't logs at all, and they're moving. Cool, good, cool. Ira, like, is holding his bapping stick with both hands. <laughs> Ira, roll a reflex saving throw. <sighs> As three crocodiles try to flip your boat. Shit. Eleven is a four plus seven. Goodbye to Ira. Gosh. <laughs> this is... <laughs> Did Ira die? Gloriously in battle, fighting <laughs> for his clan. In battle, his no. <laughs> bopping stick. No, he died clumsily in a <laughs> bramble of a mangrove full of uh, crocodiles. <laughs> yeah, you get tipped out of your boat. And I think you find that your bapping stick is insufficient <laughs> for what you are trying to achieve as it floats away from you and your upturned boat begins sinking into the water. Oh, God. <laughs> oh. 
<laughs> and luckily, it's not very deep. You can almost stand where you are, but it doesn't matter because those three logs, those three crocodiles are coming at you fast. Hey, do you want to know what my swim skill is? I would love to know what your swim skill is. It's minus three. Because I'm a cat and I hate the water. (laughs) (laughs) You are sputtering and struggling to get in a good breath and flailing around. You are wet. It is cold. You are about to die, you're pretty sure, as you look at one of the crocodiles directly in front of you, which has opened its massive jaw, which will absolutely fit your entire head and shoulders in it. And then suddenly you see that face get slapped by something pink and sticky. And the jaw slams shut. And then you see it get hit again. And then you see another one get hit and another one. And as you watch these crocodiles just get punched over and over again by something that you realize eventually is a tongue. Oh no. You finally look up to see a large humanoid frog crouched at the roots of one of the mangrove trees with bulging eyes and a wide mouth his round body bent forward and the flat tips of his fingers and toes spread wide over the roots. He's about your height, but twice as wide. And he wears tattered brown leather with a hood drawn up over his wide head. And as the crocodiles swim away and you sputter in the water, he blinks. First with a transparent set of eyelids and then with the eyelids you'd expect. I think Ira's just like trying to to get his feet under him and catching his breath and sees this person and and is like, oh God, thank you. I don't I don't think I could have done that on my own. This frog blinks at you again. Ira slow blinks back. <laughs> and he extends his wooden staff to you. To help you out of the water. Ira grabs the stick. You grab what appears to be a far superior bapping stick. (laughs) Not that he needs it. (laughs) And are pulled out of the drink by this frog. And as he helps you back to solid ground and your boat sinks in front of you, this frog turns and looks at you, blinking one eye and then the other, and says... Ira of the Claw Strike Clan. You're more purple in person. Come, I've been expecting you. Wait, you you know me? How how do you know me? He turns and starts moving quickly over the roots. And I think you have to really hustle to follow him. And between the time it took you to get into the swamp and the time it takes you to follow him, which is hard and exhausting, by the time you reach his home, by the time you reach a hut set into a large swelling of roots, the sun is starting to go down over the horizon. Yeah, Ira scrambles over the roots and climbs his way as quick as he can to follow this frog and... 
it finally clamors over the last part and it's just like, oh God, okay, I'm here. <laughs> you find, once you get up to the hut, you find that arranged around the hut, between the roots and the earth that form this little island, is a series of perfectly circular pools with green water, surrounded by arcane symbols written in white chalk. And it's these pools of water that you find this frog examining. You also see all around pieces of paper and several quills and scraps of writing. And the tips of the frog's fingers and toes, which have like little suctiony circles at the end, make sort of like a wet sound as he moves quickly around the roots, examining the different pools. Is, uh, is this your home? He looks over at you briefly and nods. Are, are you looking for something? I think it is you who are looking for something. Yes. That is true. Yeah. He settles down in the middle of a few of these pools of water and pats the ground next to him. Ira sits down next to the frog and then begins to say, um, who are you? How, how do you know me? And how do you know what I'm doing? I, you know, I haven't told anyone. I hone in on interesting events, interesting people in history. Such is my gift. And he waves a hand in front of you. And for an instant, inexplicably, you see, reflected back at you from the three different pools in front of you, the faces of your friends. You see Gideon, you see Tonmer, and you see Riva. For the brief moment that you see them, you can tell that Riva has a black eye and a bloodied lip. Gideon looks serious, more serious than usual, and Tonmer looks tired. And then their faces disappear, and you only see green water again. As the frog says, you are all becoming very interesting people. So you know all of us. You Have you been watching us? He hops over to a chest and flips it open for you. And inside it, you see a neatly arranged series of books. Some which are actually printed. They appear to be published books. And some that are handwritten, as if they are in progress. He pulls one out and hands it to you. And you can see on the cover, it says, Drakdor Nuz. What is that from? You've heard this name twice before. Yeah. Yeah, I think I was just like racking. Wait, no. Famous Bard? Famous Bard. Who wrote about vampires. Drakdor Nuz is Ivy's favorite author. And he's known for cryptic works. And from these cryptic works came the poem 
that you were given before you went into Oberon's castle and the poem you were given before you went into Sanguine Silvis to find the pack. Ira looks at this book and sees the name on it. And for a second, he's confused. And it's just like, that's that name sounds so familiar. And then he remembers the poems and the details that Vesper had like said something about. He doesn't know how this person got this information or something. Yes. He said this is an infamous and sort of mysterious bard that seems to have information about Oberon's castle, which has been buried for 100 years. And the Sanguine Silvis Pack, which, as far as you know, is a secret. Iris says, uh, how do, is this, do I need to read this book? Uh, are you Drakdor Nuz? I am. And he hops and turns around and looks back into the pools of water and quickly, you see three different pools all flash different images, people you don't know, in places you've never seen. And as he looks into them, he says, My calling is not to change history, only to document the most interesting pieces of it. But to document things without changing them, you must be clever. And he hops back over and flips open the book in your hands and hands it back to you. For example, if instead of writing, and he puts a sticky finger on the poem that you were sent by Ivy by Vesper about the Sanguine Silva's pack, which reads, they forged a pact, a treaty, a covenant that held fast while seasons came and went. Cursed beasts lost to hunters and to time and with them a change in paradigm. They bear their teeth but do not bite, mythically strong but walk from the fight. Until a violent act, a vicious stunt, blood spills and thus begins the wild hunt. He points at these lines and he says, For example, if instead of that I had simply written, There's a pack of werewolves hiding in Sanguine Silvis and they are gentle creatures, then, and he holds up a finger, then your lycanthrope friends would be nothing more than trophies mounted to a beast hunter's wall. True. And it wouldn't be a poem. <laughs> <laughs> he hops back over and looks into the pools, and I think as the sun starts setting in the sky, torches that are set into the roots are lit. And that lights the pools and also lights Drakdor as you sit with him. <sighs> and you you look at your compass and it is pointing right at him. Okay. Iris says, Drakdor. Nuz? Mr. Nuz. Dr. Nuz? Do you have a doctorate? It feels like you would. <laughs> what should I call you? Dractor is fine. What about Dracky? <laughs> he turns at you and one eye blinks and then the other. <laughs> and then he looks back at the pools of water. 
Dractor. If you know all the important things about history, the interesting things, do you know about my clan and the most sacred and important thing in in our pride? I know what you took. Yes. I know you seek to return it. That's why you are here, yes? Yeah, I mean, why are you helping me then if I did that to my, my own clan? Your fate, whatever it is, is not mine to change. If fate has led you here to me, then I am part of it, and so is this. But I do not know what is to be. Only what is now. Do you know where it is? He looks at you. And then his eyes blink one after the other. And then his tongue darts out and catches a bug from right behind your head. And pulls back into his mouth. Ira's eyes go really, like, his pupils expand Ira's definitely surprised, and his ears kind of flick back. I cannot locate objects. Only people and interesting events. Nothing interesting has happened to the essence of Melos since it left your pride. Then why was I led here? Not that I don't want to be here. You're a gracious host. Very thankful for you saving my butt and my whole entire life. He looks thoughtful for a minute and says, I suppose I shouldn't have changing fate and all, but... And looks at you for a moment and then looks back quietly at the pools. Uh... Ira... If you are here, then perhaps I am to show you something. Tell me, what would you like to see? What would I like to see? An interesting event, a person. But it must be now. I cannot show the past nor the future. I can, I can see anybody in the world and what they're doing right now. If they are a person of interest, then I can see them. And you can see me, obviously, because you know who I am. What? Why am I a person of interest? I do not know why people, places become important. And he taps a finger over each pool, and once again you see different places, different people flash. And for an instant you see Vesper, you see Danny. I do not know why you and your friends have become important. 
but you are. Can you tell me when I became important? I saw you take the essence of Malos. I've seen you since, briefly. And when you went into Sephira's service, you began coming up often. I want to see Jasmine. Drakdor holds a hand over the pool in front of you. And the water ripples. And you see her. You see Jasmine. You see your first real love. What color is her fur? What color are her eyes? Jasmine is a orange tabby cat. And she has really striking golden eyes that reflect the sun really brightly. You see this orange tabby cat with her golden eyes that you know very well. She's standing on the bow of a ship, silhouetted by the setting sun. Golden light reflecting off of water. And it's only been maybe six months since you've seen her. But she looks taller, somehow. Maybe a little harder. She's got scars that weren't there before. And she has charcoal drawn around her eyes and a smirk on her face. Her lips painted red. She's a vision of danger and beauty. And however you feel about her now, it's easy to see how you'd fallen for her. She confidently takes up space, commands a room, feels like a force of nature. You remember what basking in that was like. And then, as quickly as the image came, with a ripple, she vanishes. I think Ira kind of gives a small, sweet smile, remembering all the times before they took the essence of Balos. Because they were good, and they were... They were great. I mean, they were in love. How did your relationship with Jasmine start? How did you fall in love? I mean, I think we just uh, grew up together. Our, our pride is very small. So Ira and Jasmine were just always in the same areas, learning the same things, playing in the same group. But what... What moment was it that you looked at her and you were like, her, I, I want to be with her? Sometimes it's something small. In fact, I think it usually is. I think it's when I 
was practicing a performance and it wasn't very good, but she was watching and listening with rapt attention and not in a like condescending way or like trying to appease or be nice. She genuinely was interested in listening and watching me and I could tell that she wanted to see me grow. I think she saw something in you, Ira. To put it mildly, she saw potential. Mm -hmm. And I think she really, really believed in you. And it's it's a very powerful feeling to feel like someone believes in us. Mm -hmm. And I think she always did believe that you were destined for something important. Drakdor pulls a piece of paper in front of you and pushes you a quill. Now, Ira of the Claw Strike Pride. Write me a poem. Write you a poem? Tell me what you know, what you've seen now in the pools, without telling me what you've seen. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I think when you look at him in puzzlement, he says... Sometimes it's more about what you don't say. For example, I was relaxing, and now you're here. I did not say your presence is stopping me from relaxing, but in the space between the words, it was implied. Well, I'm sorry that I've gotten in the way of your relaxing. <laughs> <laughs> he smiles and puts a sticky hand on your back and says, write the soul of what you've seen, not the facts of it. Ira thinks for a moment, kind of like looks up and, and I think he gets a, gets a thought and, Starts writing. Ira, you work through the evening with Drakdor to craft this poem. You work through the night. And he is an infamous bard for a reason. His mastery, not just over the words he uses, but the words he doesn't, over the empty spaces he leaves, makes an impression on you. And you are keenly aware that you are learning from a genuine master of the craft. E eccentric, unusual, probably not what you would have expected, but brilliant. I did not know that he would be a frog. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't even begin to imagine how he writes with those sticky fingers. <laughs> <laughs> and at the end of the evening, this is the poem that you end up with. The sun sets behind her eyelids as she stands a hundred feet tall, shoulders set and eyes steady, steadfast as waves crash the hull. She draws you in, all-encompassing. It feels like you are full, like you could burst open. She draws you in, 
like a black hole. You were both meant for this, the breeze and the salt in your fur, but her footsteps stretch out in front of you, and you watch while she unfurls. Striking out to fulfill her destiny, no matter what is in the way, the sea spread out before her, while behind her lay decay. The strongest bond is now broken, her pride's melody now falls flat, the kid's future now uncertain, and she never turns back. You part from Drakdor the next morning, and he outfits you with some more rations and some more water, and your clothes spent the night drying by the fire, and I think you pack that poem that you wrote up. You have a scroll holder on your belt, and it fits well in there. Do I get a new bapping stick? You get a brand new bapping stick. <laughs> I know. I know. It's amazing. You get a brand new bapping stick, and... Drakdor accompanies you to the edge of the swamp where the ground becomes solid again. And he blinks at you oddly one more time. By the way, Ira of the Claw Strike Pride, for where you're headed next, my fifth volume, page 167. And then he turns and he hops away. Then uh, Ira commits that to memory. Volume 5, page 167. And while he's committing that to memory, sees Draktor hop away and says, Bye, Draktor. It was so great meeting you. Nobody's <laughs> going to believe me. <laughs> <laughs> they really, really won't. <laughs> This is Dre Silvertooth, and thank you for listening to episode 53, part 7 of The Scattered Pawns. Dear friends, as I mentioned last time, you may have noticed that episodes are coming more slowly this interlude than they do during the main arcs. Because of the structure of the interlude, recordings we would usually cut into multiple episodes, say for example the beastly four and a half, nearly five hours of raw audio that became this episode are instead being cut into episodes that are approximately the length of a feature-length film. So, we thank you in advance for your patience as we deviate from our usual three-week schedule to bring you these gigantic episodes as quickly as we are able. It's basically like we're dropping double features, if you really think about it. I am very proud of these interlude episodes. I hope you're enjoying them, too. Leanne totally slayed on the sound effects and music scoring this episode, so just a little shout out. We are very lucky to have her. For the second half of this episode, there is some spooky stuff coming. If there's anything you'd like to be mindful of, here is your friendly reminder to pop on over to badheroescast.com slash content warnings. Now, drum roll. On to something exciting. We have a new patron. Big thank you to our newest patron, Miguel. You are genuinely the loveliest of humans and a very dear friend. Thank you for supporting our adventure.
If you also would like to support the adventure, head on over to patreon.com slash badheroes. Our lowest tier is $2 a month, and it lets us know, hey, I'm listening, and I like what you're doing. Keep that magic going. If you'd like to tip the bards, but just once instead of monthly, perhaps just to cheer on your favorite purple cat in his quest, you can head on over to ko-fi.com slash badheroes, ko-fi.com slash badheroes, and leave us a one-time tip. And hey, do you know what's free? Cost exactly zero money. Leaving us a review anywhere. Ideally five stars, but hey, chase your bliss. Or you can recommend us to a friend. Word of mouth goes a long way for little shows like us. And then you can send them the Ira cat memes that we're definitely about to post on Twitter for this episode. I made like five memes and they're all very funny. Okay, now I have for you a promo from The Lucky Die. Here we go. You see, looking up from the ground, blood red clouds boiling across the sky. You did ask me to bring the thunder. Dejan! <laughs> Dejan! Help! I've got the chalice, please! Well, if they're following you, then I guess that takes care of a loose end for me. <laughs> All of you feel the earth beneath you shake and crack and break. I feel that I have failed both of you, and I am sorry for that. This has nothing to do with you being a bad leader. Do you want a countdown? Oh, I think I want a countdown. I wanted Three, to help. I always had good intentions. I did not deserve to die. Now. The Lucky Die Podcast is a weekly 5e Dungeons & Dragons actual play podcast. Join our adventure every Monday, wherever you download podcasts, by searching for The Lucky Die. That was The Lucky Die. Check it out. Come say hi to us on social media. We are at Bad Heroes Cast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr. Or, if you don't do the social medias, but you'd still like to reach us, you can reach Leanne and I at badheroescast at gmail.com. Music in this episode, oh big breath, many songs, <gasps> is Brand New World by Kai Engel, Manly Nun Steps Out by Dr. Turtle, God, we've been waiting so long to use that song, what is that name, and Terminal, Thinking Music, Sneaky Adventure, Deep Haze, The Pyre, Oppressive Gloom, Long Note 1 and 3, Hush, Movement Proposition, <laughs> Night Dreams, and Evening Fall by Kevin McLeod. Thank you, Kevin. <laughs> Our theme song, as always, is Solve the Damn Mystery by Jesse Spillane. We used a lot of sound effects from freesound.org in this episode. Like, seriously, a lot. Leanne went totally ham editing this one. And I am not going to list every single sound effect we use because we will genuinely be here till the end of time, till we are dust and only cockroaches exist. But you can find all of the credits in our show notes. That is all for now, my friends. Please enjoy the rest of the episode. We will have the next one to you just as soon as we can. See you then.
Ira, you say goodbye to your new friend, Dractor, and your pendant points you northwest. Go ahead and give me a will saving throw and a survival check. 18 on a will saving throw. I And then a survival check? Mm-hmm. Wow. 16 survival. I rolled a 12 both times. <laughs> oh, wow. You do all right. You do okay. Are you following your pendant still? Yes. Okay, so Ira, the next stretch of your journey takes you inland, away from the sea, and your pendant leads you northwest. Ira, do you have a map? Do I? I don't know. I I think you do. I think you took a map with okay. you, when you yeah. when you left to go on this journey. Yes. I don't know if a map is technically part of an adventurous kit, but I think you have the equivalent of like a roadmap that people keep in their glove compartment. All the 20-year-olds listening to this are like, what? <laughs> yeah, the, <laughs> people who have never lived before Google Maps have no idea what I'm talking about. But there was, okay, everybody sit down. I have to tell you something that's going to break your heart. There was a time before phones knew how to have maps. And in that time, you would either have a hand-drawn map that your mother drew you because she was awesome, or you would buy a little map and it had all the little streets labeled, and then you'd have a compass stuck to the top of your car. I sound like a fucking dinosaur right now. (laughs) Anyway, it's true. There was a time when this was happening. So you're basically doing that. You have a little map. Presumably, you also have a compass. So looking at your map, you know that you are headed northwest, which is towards the territory of Eridor. And separating the territory of Eridor from Central Vire, there is this deep canyon. You can see it on the map because it's huge, carved by an ancient river that long ago dried out. And after this pretty uncomfortable part of the journey, this very difficult day and a half of walking basically completely uphill, you find yourself at this canyon, only to discover with no small amount of misery that your compass is pointing right at it. And when you imagine this canyon, it's called the Whispering Canyon. Not the Grand Canyon. (laughs) No, I want you to imagine the Grand Canyon. But if you looked down into the Grand Canyon and it was completely dark and misty, And like half as scenic because you can't see the rest of it. Basically, imagine if the Grand Canyon looked super cursed. Okay. (laughs) That's that's where you are right now. Yikes. So, So there's this canyon, this massive canyon. And there's a bridge. A big monstrosity of steel and supportive magic. But the toll to cross, after doing some quick math, is like 500 gold. I don't have that, do I? No, you don't have that. And you left the capital so fast that Safira hadn't given you your 10,000 gold yet because you left like the next day. I don't think you could take the bridge even if you wanted to. You see just one person next to the bridge. It's a guard. It's a man with a big beard and a bigger belly. And he waves to you as you walk up to the canyon. Hello. Uh, hey, how, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm okay. I am I'm a little worried because I think I need to go into this canyon or pass it in some way. Well, the long way around takes like a week on foot. Maybe you could cross. 
it's expensive. I mean, if you pay me, that's my job. But if you pay me, then you can walk across the bridge. Yeah. Is it, what, what day is it? You got any, like, I don't know, weekend discounts or something? <laughs> <laughs> he explains that no, he doesn't have a weekend discount. And you know that if you walk a week around this canyon, you will not have time to get your butt back to the capital. Mm-hmm. He waves you over conspiratorially to the edge of the canyon. He walks you a little way from the bridge and he points in the distance. And you can see that there is a crumbling dirt path that leads down into the bottom of the canyon. And he explains that it supposedly comes up on the other side, but he's never been. And he says, I wouldn't try it if I were you, kid. There's rumors of some kind of monster. They say, and he kind of leans in close. They say the whispers in the canyon are the monster talking to its prey. Whatever you're looking for, I don't think it's worth it. And he kind of gives you a pat on the back and then goes back to his post. Okay. Yeah, I mean, Ira thinks it is worth it. I, I need to get the essence of Melos back. Whether it kills me or not. Okay. It's about midday. Do you head down that footpath? He could head down and then camp at the bottom and then head up the next day. And he has low light vision, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he's just gonna... He's gonna head down. Okay. This footpath feels really perilous. There are parts of it where you feel like you might slip. Mm. This is obviously like not maintained in any way. This isn't supposed to be used. Yeah. Give me a dexterity check. <laughs> what is that face? <laughs> it's the face of I rolled a six plus three, which is nine. Okay. <laughs> All right. I think there's a couple times that your foot slips on the edge of this footpath and you don't completely fall and like tumble down the canyon, but there's enough close calls that by the time you get to the bottom, your nerves are shot. Mm. You have spent a pretty scary afternoon walking down this footpath. So by the time you get to the bottom, by the time you reach what seems like flat earth, I think you have a moment where you are super relieved because you no longer are slipping and sliding on a path that might be the end of you. But now you're at the bottom of the canyon. And you can't actually tell what time it is anymore because the sun is basically gone. There's a fog down inside this canyon, deep and dark, that wraps around you like a blanket. And if you didn't have the compass, if you didn't have the Seeker's Pendant right in front of you, pointing at something, you're not sure you'd be able to find your way at all. I think Ira is on edge and discombobulated, doesn't know which way is which, can barely tell which way is up. There's no sky above him. And he starts setting up a tent kind of off to the side, not in the middle of the canyon. Is it cold there? Mm, I think it's a little chilly, but I think it's okay. Okay. You're not like shivering. You don't feel like the temperature is any kind of danger to you. I don't think Ira is going to set up a fire because he doesn't want to draw attention to himself. And that happened when they were in Soselia. They 
set up tent mm-hmm. and a fire and then a bunch of werewolves came out. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, that's... he doesn't want a repeat of that. Okay. Yeah. So I think you're chilly and you're uncomfortable, but you have this eerie feeling in this canyon that if there's something in here, you don't want to draw its attention. Yeah. And you learn pretty quickly why it's called the Whispering Canyon. Because your footsteps, maybe your voice if you trip or make any kind of sound, echoes unnervingly around you. And you get the impression that even a whisper could be heard maybe half a mile, a mile away. The way that sound works in here, you can hear everything. And the trick is you can't actually tell how far away sounds are Mm. because everything echoes so powerfully. You set up just a bedroll then or a full tent? I think he sets up a tent. I think that feels better for him, like... Secure. Sheltered, yeah. Roll me a perception check. Oh, man, I'm so smart. Perception is the highest modifier I have. What is it? 11. Mm. Dirty 20. Okay. You are laying in this tent. You've been down in the canyon for a couple hours now. And I think just instinctively, as you started setting up this tent, as you realized how loud every movement was, you kind of started doing things quietly. Mm-hmm. And I think you're laying in your tent quietly, right? Yeah, he's not going to he's not going to like play his drum for sure or like do anything that'll really make noise. He's probably going to just try to go right to sleep. Now that you are in this canyon, but you are not moving, you can finally hear other sounds. You think you hear another voice. And it it sounds like it's almost chattering. Sometimes it sounds like it's almost begging. And it has this franticness to it. And it's it's very unnerving. But it's it's so quiet that you're not even positive that you're hearing it. Does it sound like distress or Roll me sense motive. Oh, no. (laughs) I rolled a one. Okay, I'm going to try this other d20 I have. You rolled a one. (laughs) Ira. Oh, boy. Ira, this voice sounds like someone in trouble. You're sure of it. God damn it. God (laughs) fucking damn it. Uh, 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 (laughs) Okay, well, I mean, Ira like bolts up because he hears someone Uh, in distress and he he opens his tent and he's kind of like perking his ears each way. Can he hear it anymore if he like moves his ears a certain way like can he like ascertain some kind of direction i think it's really hard because of the nature of this canyon because of the way that the sound echoes i don't know that you can i think you can distinguish like louder or softer so i think you'd be able to tell if you were getting closer or if it was getting closer to you but i don't think you can tell which direction it's coming from okay well this is what ira is gonna do 
he's going to think about this person in distress. It's not hard because he can hear it. And I think he's like hearing it more and more. It's not getting any louder or anything, but I think he's focusing on it. So he's like hearing okay. it. So he's mm-hmm. going to think like, I need to get to that person. I need to get to the source of this distress call. And he's going to try to use his seeker's pendant to get there. Okay. Roll a will check. Uh, will, don't fail me now. What did I just tell you, Will? <laughs> what did you roll? A seven plus six. Okay. The seeker's pendant lifts off of your chest and the little arrow inside it spins. First to the left, then to the right. It focuses on the right for a minute and then it flicks back towards the left. And then slowly settles pointing to the right. And then it drops down. Back to lay flat on your chest. I think Ira's gonna head right. That's what his gut says. It's like, that's that's accurate. Do you leave your tent and everything? Yeah, I mean, I think he does. I don't think he has, he, he doesn't feel like he has time. To, if somebody's in distress, he needs to get there as soon as he can. Okay, so you probably have your basic stuff with you, like whatever bag you carry, but you don't have like your tent and your Yeah, bedroom. I'm not going to break down my tent and like roll up my, my sleeping roll. Okay. He'll take rations with him in case this person needs to eat. Okay. All right. So you basically bring all your stuff with you except for your tent and your bedroll. Yeah. Ira, you you are certain that someone is in danger, is in distress, and that mm-hmm. maybe that's why you can hear them. Maybe that's why people have been hearing them. And so you start heading towards them, kind of wandering in the dark now. You can see directly in front of you enough not to like trip, but... Sometimes when you get up to the wall of the canyon, you weren't expecting it until you get within a couple feet of it. And I think you spend like 10 minutes heading that direction before you realize like you don't think you could actually find your way back. And Ira, give me another perception check. Jesus fucking Christ. Okay. (laughs) 20 again. Okay. Ira, you realize that that distant voice has actually been quiet for a few minutes. And you are so busy being lost and turned around and finding yourself at one canyon wall and wondering which side it is and if you had somehow walked all the way across. But no, that can't be because you haven't been in here that long and it looked far wider than that. And And maybe you should have put your hand on the wall and followed it that way. Maybe that would have been smart because then you can't get turned around. But shit, like, where are you exactly? It maybe takes you a minute to realize that that sound has stopped. Great. Awesome. (laughs) But there is the shape of a person in the fog. Great. Great. Even more good. At least you think it's a person. Ugh. It looks like someone is crouched down. No, that's scary. Among the rocks and the dirt. Baby, why are you, why are you oh, scary like this? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Baby, this is creepy as hell. Why are you doing me like this? I'm sorry. <laughs> GMing. Do you need to take a minute? No, it's okay. Do you need me to come give you a hug? (laughs) It's okay, but that's creepy as hell, man. 
Yeah. So you so you see uh, this figure uh, in the fog crouched down. Why? What do you do? Rhonda. <laughs> oh god. I think you actually do have the very strong instinct that you should. Yeah, I mean, that's creepy as hell. This person is not trying to make themselves known. They're clearly, like, watching and waiting and being creepy. So what do you do? I think Ira is going to grip his dagger, and he's going to walk very quickly away from the direction of this person. Do you turn your back to this person, or do you walk backwards? I think think he's going to walk backwards and see what happens. You start walking backwards watching this figure and in the fog as you take a few steps backwards and your footsteps make sound you see this person unfurl what they are crouched on the ground and they look small but when they stand they look huge and you can see baby are you okay (laughs) I'm good baby (laughs) what can I see (laughs) You see this figure unfurl, and when they stand, they are big. They are at least six feet tall, but they are thin. And you can only see their silhouette, but you actually think each hand has more fingers than it should. Can you not, like, I'm just, (laughs) not really, but like, what? (laughs) You, you get a second to really take in, uh uh-oh. Did you mean to just leave this call? Because <laughs> it was too scary. <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. Maybe subconsciously I did. Rev just left the Discord. <laughs> he was like, I'm fucking out. Goodbye. <laughs> you. <laughs> That's the funniest thing. <laughs> you. You get a good look at this silhouette, the shape of this thing through the fog. And you know instantly in that part of the brain that detects danger that you need to run full turnaround, completely run max speed. There is no bargaining with what you are looking at. You need to run now. I think he does. I think he turns around. I think Ira runs as fast as possible, and that might mean getting on all fours. Okay. Yeah. I like it. You run kind of like Teen Wolf style, yeah. right? Like leaping front feet, back feet. So I think you are running as fast as you possibly can. I think you spin around on all fours, your drum clipped to your belt, your bag on your back, and you are just hauling ass and away from this figure. Give me just a flat D20 roll. Because you can't see where you're going very well, and some of this is luck. Well, 18, so give me your best. Don't do that, though. Don't actually. <laughs> oh. Did you just kill me? <laughs> well, I rolled a nat 20. What? Mm-hmm. Get out of here. Ira, what's your combat maneuver defense? 16. You are hauling ass as fast as you can go. But you can hear it behind you. You can hear it breathing. And you no. can hear that it's getting closer. No. And when it grabs you... What? It grabs you hard, and the two of you tumble through the dirt and come to a stop with it on top of you. Ira's like, this feels familiar, thinking of... Oh, Thalia? Yes. (laughs) Ira's like, this is oddly familiar, but 
way less sexy. <laughs> this is this is way less sexy. There is nothing sexy about this creature. I mean, at least not to yuck anyone's yums, but I don't think <laughs> there's anything standardly sexy about this creature that I'm about to describe to you. Are you carrying a light? I mean, I think he has a torch. So you you were holding this torch, and when you started sprinting away from this creature, you probably dropped it. Cool. Because you can't run on all fours and hold it at the same time. Right. Yes. But it's so close enough to you that it lights the scene, and this creature is backlit by the torch that you dropped that's slowly flickering out on the ground. And it's it's not so much that it doesn't have skin. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> that's, that's a horrible way to start the sentence. You know that, right? It's not so much that it doesn't have skin, though that might be what you think at first. Nobody asked what its skin looked like, okay? <laughs> <laughs> it's more that its skin is pulled so tightly and has such a strange, transparent quality that you can see every muscle. You can practically see the dark blood pumping in that creature's oddly placed veins. And as it looms over you and grins... Grins? You can see that... I didn't ask for any of this detail. Okay, <laughs> how about Ivor closes his eyes... <laughs> Before you close your... ...and awaits death. <laughs> <laughs> when, when it grins, you can see that its teeth, every single uh... one of them is sharp like a shark. No! Its smile is far too wide for its face. It seems to nearly split its head in two. And when it exhales, its breath smells like something crawled in there and died. And for a split second, you can see viscera in its teeth and at the edge of its lips. And you know in this moment that this is the monster of the Whispering Canyon. What did you just roll? Why are you making secret checks? <laughs> I'm rolling to see if Ira just spontaneously combusts because he can't handle this. <laughs> he does. Again, nobody asked for this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> skin, muscles, teeth, pointy, smile, deranged. Good, good. Okay. <laughs> Putrid smell out of its mouth. All right. I got it. What do you do? Scream? <laughs> I think it's the first thing he does is scream. For sure. Does Ira know what this is? Or is this something he's never heard of or seen or read about before? Hmm. You have that bardic skill where you can make any knowledge check. Do history local. Okay. I like that. Because that is the highest one that I have. <laughs> 19. You remember being in the capital. You remember hearing a conversation in the underground theater from a very old man. You think he was at least a century old. You remember him talking about demons. That there was a time a hundred years ago right as the House of Fane took power, where demons poured through the Hellmouths into Vyre. And you remember him describing some of them 
as looking as if they didn't have skin. Good. And you think this is a demon. Maybe one type of demon. Okay. A demon. Awesome. You know what I am? Hmm. A four foot five cat folk. <laughs> <laughs> he screams first and foremost, uncontrollably. Fair. <laughs> and then he catches his breath, coughs a little because it smells so bad. Uh huh. And he's like, um, <clears throat> uh, hi, I don't suppose we can talk <laughs> this through, can we? And he, uh, he dangles his little vire earring. To show that, like, he's in with the hell mouths and all that. Mm. I'm, I'm with it. I'm hip. So you're, <laughs> so you're trying to show that you work for Safira. Yeah. Right. Okay. Maybe that'll be bad, but I'm gonna try by flashing her symbol. Okay. <laughs> so, the demon does not look like it knows what that symbol is. It doesn't light any kind of recognition in its eyes, and. You realize quickly that this creature is not having a conversation with you in the traditional sense. It's talking, it's chattering, but it's not really talking to you. And it doesn't really seem to be listening to what you're saying either. And you hear... And as you hear this creature whispering, (sighs) this creature bites into your shoulder hard and it hurts. You do know I don't have much left. I was bit by a werewolf as well. You were scratched and you're going to end up with some lit scars. You would know if you'd been bit by a werewolf. (laughs) It bites down on you hard and it fucking hurts. It takes 12 hit points instantly. Excuse me. With how big and painful that bite is. And then while this thing has its teeth sunk into you and you are almost certainly screaming. A lot of very confusing things happen all at once. You feel a splash of water hit your face and your chest as if the sky inexplicably suddenly opened up and rained down specifically on you and the creature that has you in its grasp. And then you feel those teeth pull out of you and you hear the creature scream. A strangled, startled scream as it lets go of you. And you catch a glimpse of it howling in pain and gripping its face, holding its eyes as the water that touched it sizzles and burns. Holy water. Yeah. (laughs) And then you feel hands on you pulling you back and away fast. What is your reaction to that touch? Yeah, I mean, I think my my legs are going to go in the direction of whoever is pulling me back. You are being pulled up off the ground and pulled back, and you are walking with it, and you spin around to find a feline face. You see a wide-eyed lioness holding a finger to her lips as she pulls you backwards. 
and then you don't see her. What? She vanishes from sight, but you can still feel her hands on you as you are pulled further and further away from the demon that's howling and snarling and shouting. Give me a stealth check. 19. Okay. As you stumble away quickly, being pulled by these hands you can no longer see, you move with relative quietness. You are stepping softly with your feet. One of the hands that's on you releases you, and you see a rock, a big rock at your feet, lift up as if it's floating, as if someone you can't see is holding it. And she throws it hard into the distance. It hits the canyon wall and rolls down. And after a moment of furious muttering and hissing, the creature vanishes into the fog, chasing that sound. Okay. You feel that hand on you gripping your arm, and it tugs at you urgently to follow. Do you go with it? Oh, yeah. They just saved me, so. You move together quickly and quietly, about a quarter mile in the other direction. You hear a voice say, Come with us, kid. Quiet. Us? There's no answer, and you feel yourself bump into an invisible something. And then you feel yourself being pushed up into an invisible something that feels a lot like, after some consideration, a cart. And when you look down to figure it out, you realize you can't see the cart. Nor can you see your hands or your legs or any part of you because you are invisible too. Hmm. You can feel the cart under you moving, feel the uneven rolling of wheels, but it doesn't make a sound. The movement, your breathing, and the lioness you can feel still holding your hand tightly from her place beside you, they're all perfectly silent. What you can hear is angry whispering and hissing and muttering in the distance. You can hear that creature, that same unhinged, inhuman voice, but it's getting further away. The silence persists all the way up and out of the canyon. As the party that you've been absorbed into follows the same dirt path you came down hours ago. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> Do you still go with them? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think Ira's sense now is that if he stays in the canyon alone, he's not going to make it. Yeah. And you are quite injured. And I think during the like silent trip up, you feel the lioness like push cloth up against your shoulder because you are bleeding a lot and it hurts. The only thing that is a gift is it seems like even if you breathe heavily because you're in pain, it can't be heard. It's not until you are out of the canyon and several miles away from the bridge that you finally hear sound return. The wheels of the cart beneath you creak and squeak and the two ponies pulling the cart huff with tiredness and stamp their feet, demanding rest. And all at once, the voices and faces of half a dozen cat folk, lion folk, to be specific, form around you. I think I heard just kind of like settles as far back in the cart as he can. Was definitely just saved by these people, but also doesn't know you know what their intentions are so he's just kind of like wild-eyed and waiting the lioness who is sitting next to you on the cart rounds on you immediately and says 
What were you thinking, Ken? Traveling alone through the Whispering Canyon, you should be dead. Yeah, well, I'm not, thanks to you. You hear a voice from behind you say, That was brave and very stupid. You both could have been killed, Samara. What were you thinking? You see the lioness who's sitting next to you that now that you look at her, you realize she's she's about your age. She's pretty young. Her ears kind of pinned back against her head. She says, he would be dead if I hadn't. <sighs> and she turns to you and kind of straightens up and says, Hi, I'm Samara. Lero clan. I'm Ira of the Clawstrike clan. Thank you so much for, for helping me back there. Even though it was at great risk to you, I don't think I would have gotten out of that without you. She takes your hand and shakes it. And you can see that there's a little bit of blood on her hand and then you realize it's yours because she's been pushing fabric into your shoulder. And then you hear that same deeper voice again say, brother, and it is the largest catfolk you have ever seen. His lion's mane fanning out around his face. And he says, as he picks you up out of the cart and straightens you up, don't you know we are not meant to be alone? Yeah, I uh, haven't always been alone, but I I have to do this on my own to get back to my clan. He tilts his head at you and his ears flick, and he shakes his head and says, you'd better stay with us tonight. The sun is going down, and... Samara gets up and is reaching around the wagon to find something better to wrap your arm with. And the other four lions that are all traveling with this group start tending to you. They wrap up your arm. They bandage you. It seems like you are staying with them for the evening and they are not having it any other way. Yeah. And I'm, I don't think Ira is really protesting either. As you see the six of them all working in front of you, all taking things off of the cart. Someone is tending to the ponies. Someone else is starting to begin a fire and pitch tents. You see the Seeker's Pendant lift up off your chest and point at them. I think Ira is going to kind of like walk around the fire just to kind of see what the Seeker's Pendant does. Like, does it still point past them or does it continue to point at them no matter what direction I'm in? It points at them. Ira keeps quiet for now and just helps in any way that he can. You find out over the course of the evening that they travel through that canyon a few times a year to sell their wares in the capital. So they don't have to pay that fee to cross the bridge. They move invisible and silent through the canyon, and they have never seen the creature before, but they know it's there because they've heard it. Mm -hmm. But this is the first time that they've actually encountered that monster. and. They want to know what you're looking for. They want to know why you were in the canyon. Especially Samara. I think you sit with her by the fire and she asks, you said you were looking for something. What? Yeah. Um, I'm looking for something that's really important to my clan, my people, my family. We're a clan of bards and and this helps each of our kits to form the power that they need in their instrument to be the best bard that they can be. And I lost it. 
so I need to get it back. And that's why you're alone? Yeah. I can't go back until I get it. She wraps an arm around you, and they don't ask you about it anymore. But they tell you that they are headed back to the capital, and if you want to go with them, you can. What do you tell them? I think Ira goes into detail about his relationship with Jasmine. He feels at home because he's with catfolk, and they've been really kind. And he's nervous to tell them because he betrayed his clan, and he's just afraid of what they would think of him. But he does tell them truly and goes into detail. And I think he asks them like if they have ever heard of the essence of Malos, if they've ever seen it anywhere. Samara tells you that she's heard of a group of island catfolk with a musical gift. But that's all she knows. Saphira's snake isn't with me, right? No. Okay. Tessir is with her. He typically only comes with you guys during when you're actually hunting the curse. Yeah. Gotcha. So when you guys returned to the capital, he left your possession and went back with her. These lions, they have huge voices and they all roar. I don't think the cat folk that you live with roar. No, I think the Clawstrike clan is much smaller. They're smaller cats and they're more purry than Rory. (laughs) These are big cats. They look like they live in a hard environment. And they all look like they can fight. And at night around the fire, they don't play instruments, but they do sing with these big, almost intimidating voices. And they harmonize in a way that you've never heard before. It's eerie and it's beautiful. And there's something about it that triggers even in you a bit of a prey response. But it is musical. And I think they invite you to play your hang drum with them. Do you? Yeah, yeah, I definitely think Ira does. They want to hear this gift that you've been given. This gift that the essence of Melos has granted you, this bond with your instrument. You play and harmonize into the evening. And as you do, your mind wanders. What do you think you think about? Jasmine and that dynamic and just kind of everything that led to where he's at now. You play this beat, surrounded by cowfolk, and you remember your first love and you remember your exile, and you remember exactly how the essence of Melos was stolen. So, let's play that out. Ira, you and Jasmine had a special place on your island where you would talk and kiss and be together. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-huh. Et cetera. Where was it? What what is this place like? I think it was by the North Shore, which is just cliffs. So it's not like a beach where you can lounge and like swim. 
So not a lot of people would go to the North Shore. It was much more isolated. Yeah, so I think they would find a little place that was secluded. It was a little blocked off from like anybody coming up from the south end. So you can like see out to the ocean, but nobody can like really see you coming from the other direction. Okay. Hidden, but also has like a stellar view. Yeah. So you were there with Jasmine that last night that you were home as the sun was sort of going down. And you know that the bonfire was starting back in the village. You can hear all the noise of everybody. But you were there with her on the cliffside that evening. And I think you've gone over this conversation again and again since then. How did you tend to sit with Jasmine? Is she bigger than you? Smaller than you? Same size? I think she was maybe a little bigger. Okay. And despite our like size differences, I think she would tend to have her head on my shoulder and I would have my arm around her. Okay. So yeah, she has her head sort of on your shoulder and you have your arm wrapped around her and she has kind of a nervous energy about her tonight, which is unusual for someone who's usually pretty unflappable. And it seems like it's really out of the blue when she says, this world is so much bigger than they think it is. Ira is uh, tracing her absentmindedly and says, what do you mean by that? It's, it's small-minded to think an entire life can fit on this island. And she looks at you with her big golden eyes and you can see her orange tabby stripes There's so much more to life than sunbathing and gardening and singing and dancing. Don't you think? Yeah, I mean, there's cities out there and different places. Now you guys are on familiar ground because if this is a place you guys commonly hang out, if it's a little tucked away, I think there's even like maps pasted up. Maps and drawings of different places. This is kind of where you and Jasmine dream. Because when you sit on that north shore on the cliffs, you can see the horizon. And you can't see it, but you know somewhere north, if you just keep going, there's an entire continent full of people and places, cities and villages and streams and forests and plains and rivers. There's there's everything up there. And I think there is like a treasured map that some time ago Jasmine traded for that you guys have pasted up behind you. And it has all of these places highlighted that you two would like to go. Yeah, I think Ira points to the map and is like, I want to go there. I want to go to a big city where there's just too many people to count. Nobody's really looking at you and there's this sense of You belong. You belong so much that nobody blinks. Nobody bats an eye at you. You just fit in and you move with the crowd. That's where I want to go, where there's just so much humanity, so much life, so much going on. She has her head on your shoulder and she's tilted her face back to look at the map. And she grabs your hand and says... You want to see the world. And I want to see the world with you. 
Iria. What... What would you do to make that happen? To see the world with you? Yeah. I'd do anything, babe. (laughs) Me too. You cuddle back up, and you can see the silhouettes of two ships on the horizon, dark against the golden sky, bathed in warm light from the sun setting in the west. You know those ships carry traders that visit once or twice a year to barter for trinkets and melodies. Mostly elven people, impossibly tall compared to you catfolk, and very polite. You know that they're packing up and leaving this evening. And I think every time the traders come, you and Jasmine, your wanderlust gets a little stronger. Especially as you watch them leave. And you hear from where she's nestled into your shoulder. Babe, you trust me, don't you? Of course. I need you to do something for me. What is it, babe? She sits up and she looks at you. And you see the face of the woman you love. And she says... I need you to bring Ramsey out of the ritual room to the garden out front. I have something to show you. It it can't wait. It has to be now. Or we'll miss our chance. Okay. are, Are you showing Ramsey too? Please. Just trust me. And she... She gets up quickly and dusts herself off. And it seems like she's, like, setting her mind to something. And she puts down a hand to help you up. I mean, I, I can get Ramsey out for a few seconds and got new jokes to tell him, so I'm sure he needs some fresh air every now and then. Yeah, just keep him out long enough for me to show you something, okay? Okay. Is it is it big? Or are you going to, like, do you need to show me something big? <laughs> It's pretty big. She helps you up and she kisses you. And when you finally pull back, those big golden eyes stare back at you. And right before you part, she pulls back in for a second and touches the side of your face and says, you know I want what's best for you. Right? What's best for both of us? Yeah, I know, babe. You're, uh, are you okay? Yeah. I'll see you in a minute, okay? Okay. Maybe we'll talk later? I feel like there's just something different about you tonight. I love you. I'll see you in a minute. Love you too. And she leaves. And you went to find Ramsey. You went to find your best friend. Where he often was in the evening, where he worked. You entered a round wooden building. Its walls lit by torches and decorated in intricate, hand-painted murals, mostly featuring Melisandre. And though you know that on a ritual day, when a kit turns ten and comes to receive their blessing, this building would be packed to the brim with catfolk, standing and leaning and sprawled out on pillows on the floor, voices laughing and instruments playing. 
right now the room is nearly silent and nearly empty, containing only a pedestal in the very center of the room and a lavender-colored crystal flute placed on top of it. A tall, black-furred catfolk stands near the far wall, humming absently and taking steps in three-four time, practicing his specialty, dance. I think, Ira, should I be using Iria? Whatever feels right to you, do that. Uh, I think Ira bounds in and uh, runs up to Ramsey and kind of does like a one-two punch in his chest. <laughs> hey, buddy. Oh, God. Hey, buddy. <laughs> Ow. <laughs> Why, uh, he gives you like a little one-two punch. Why aren't you out there banging your drum? I hear him out there by the fire. Uh, I don't know. I figured you'd want a little break and we can like go outside and chat for, for a few minutes. Get you some fresh air. Uh, and he, he glances at the flute. I, I shouldn't. Come on. I got, I got some things to catch you up on. Just, like, come outside for a second. And not, you can't catch me up on them in here? No. I've been inside all day. I need to be outside. Yeah, okay. Just, just for a second. I mean, everybody's at the fire anyway, right? Yeah. Ramsey steps outside with you. You step into the garden that's out front. It's got flowers and vines, and he leans up against the wall. I don't think there's a door. I think it has an opening in the front and an opening in the back that's just permanent. Mm-hmm. And he leans up against that door frame. All right, buddy, what's uh, what's up? How uh, how's it going with Jasmine? Huh? Uh, it's great. Yeah, I mean, we're we're always great. You know that. Such a smoke show. No, <laughs> if, I mean, don't be mad, but you are one lucky cat. She's really great. I'm really in love. She was a little weird tonight, though. I don't know. She's just kind of uh, seemed kind of out of it. That's weird. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sure she just is tired or... Anyway, I heard this really funny joke that I have to tell you. <laughs> I don't actually have a joke, so, like, if we can cut to whatever you... else is happening. <laughs> <laughs> you, stand out... <laughs> you stand out there with Ramsey for a few minutes, and he listens to your joke, and you enjoy the night air, and eventually he's like, all right, I, I got to get back to my post, but come on, Ken, let's... Let's finish our chat in there, huh? Oh, wait. Uh, Jasmine needed to show me something, and for some reason she wanted me to be out here with you. So, I don't know. Should we wait for her? I think you two wait. I think you wait another minute or two. And when she doesn't show up, Ramsey eventually is like, I, I gotta go back in. But, but she can come find us in there. We'll wait for her in there. Okay, yeah. I mean, it's just right in here, so... And I think you and Ramsey head inside talking and laughing like you always do. I think Ramsey's like a brother to you. Yeah. And a few steps in, he falls silent. And when you look to the center of the room, Ira, you see that the crystal flute, the heart of the Clostrite clan, the essence of Malos, is gone. Leaving just an imprint in the pillow where it sat. I think Ira's heart just sinks harder than it's ever sunk before. And looks at Ramsey knowingly, knowing that like all it took was 
the five minutes that they were outside. Ira looks at Ramsey and says, I swear I had no idea. And I, and I think Ira just runs away. Yeah, I I think Ramsey looks at you in complete shock and confusion because this has never happened. I mean, there there's always a guard, but it's mostly symbolic. Right. That island has no one coming to and from it like almost every day of the year. It is just everybody who lives there and there aren't that many of you and everybody knows everybody by name. This is not the kind of place where things go missing. Right. And so I think this takes him completely by surprise and I were you you remember his face and just the complete shock. Not even horror, not yet, because he didn't understand yet. He just looked lost. It's unbelievable. Where did you go? The first place he went to was to the spot that Jazz, like, he knows that it was Jasmine. He knows. She was acting strange. She asked him to take Ramsey outside. She never showed up. He knows that she took it, and he runs to their spot to see if she's there. She is. She's there. And she has a bag on. And she pushes your bag towards you. He uh, shrugs the bag off and is like, what did you do? We have to go now. I have packed your best things. We have to go now or we'll miss the ship. Jasmine, what did you do? She turns away from you and she paces in your special hiding spot, the place where you two have worked together to build your dreams. I did what you wouldn't do. I did what you couldn't do. I bought us our future. How could you do that to me? How could you do that to Ramsey? He's my best friend. They don't need a dusty old flute here. They're fine. But we do need it. We can't afford to leave the island without it. It's not right, Jasmine. That's not true. I think Ira is just, he's also kind of pacing a little bit and, and is like, I can't, I can't believe this just happened. I can't go back. Like, I can't, I can't face Ramsey. Knowing that he knows that I did that to him. And I can't get it back. What do you mean? Where is it, Jasmine? Where is it? It... She points at the horizon, and you can see that one of the ships has already taken off. It's on the first ship. Jasmine. It It bought us passage and supplies and all the money that we need to passage? start our life together what on the second one. Jasmine, what did you do? What? Did, why didn't you talk to me about this before? She opens her mouth to answer you and can't find the words. And I don't think you've ever seen her look like this. It looks like the impact of what she's done is starting to set in. And she's fighting it tooth and nail as she says, Melisandre stole an entire ship. From warlords. And we sing about her every night. She didn't steal from her own people. Iria, they don't need it. We're going to see the world together. We are so much bigger than this place. Ira picks up the backpack. And Ira just, like, quickly puts the bag on, looks at her disappointedly, and 
and runs out. He's heading towards the the remaining ship. You got on that second ship, both of you. And you left before anyone could figure out what had happened. And as you got on that ship, she reached out for your hand. And you took it. Because she's all you got. At the end of the day, Ira, you exiled yourself. They didn't kick you out. You left. But that doesn't make it easier. In fact, I think it makes it worse. Because you don't know how they would have treated you. You don't know what would have happened. And if you don't find the essence of Malos, you never will. He has to go back with it, or he can't go back at all. You think over this memory while the lion folk are playing. You play your drum. And I think for most of the evening, you don't really speak. There's something in their voices. There's this pure, raw emotion, this cathartic feeling to what they're sharing. It's not made to amuse or entertain. This type of music is made to be felt. And I think some of that emotion is what pulls this memory out of you. And you can only imagine what kind of feelings, what kind of memories this might pull out of others if this depth of feeling was in your performances. The Seeker's Pendant continues to point at the Lion Folk as they travel back to the capital. It's two days travel fast travel because they walk quickly and you don't walk quickly so you ride in the cart you go with them right yes in the time that you're with them samara teaches you how they survive in the canyon she teaches you how to be silent she teaches you how to be invisible and she teaches you that you should always carry holy water <laughs> She sends you away with a flask of it. Nice. And it's from this person that you learn the spells, silence, and invisibility. I think he just takes it all in, really learns from Samara and practices. Also just enjoys being part of a, a pride again. I think the, the feeling of being at home that you have with these cat folk, with these lion folk... It's similar to what you feel with Nyx and Druin, and it's most similar to what it felt like at home. And what you took, it wasn't from them. But when Samara listens to your story, when she's kind about it, it feels like a little bit of the weight you carry is lifted off of you. You travel together back to the capital. And as you get ready to part from your new friends, Samara gives you a gift. She hands you a ring. It's copper-colored, and it has a mirror on it. You haven't seen anything like it. Ooh, shiny. (laughs) 
It is a ring of spell knowledge, and it contains the spell Disguise Self. And Samara says, You should not be without your pride. I hope this helps you stay alive long enough to get back to them. Ira looks at it, puts it on his finger, and then looks at Samara, and feeling incredibly nostalgic and incredibly comfy. He opens up his arms, kind of like questioning, like, can I give you a hug? Oh, yeah. You have this embrace with her. And then it's like a second before suddenly five other lions are piling in and you're getting a big, massive group hug. And you say goodbye to your new friends. Does Ira tell them about Safira? That's up to you. I think he did because Tessier wasn't with him. Mm -hmm. He's not in the capital. So he could talk freely. And I think he did. What did you tell them? Everything? Not everything but he did kind of give a veiled warning that something is happening in the capital okay something is brewing and i think my clan might be in danger and this is why i need to get the essence of malus and go back to my clan they are from erador which means they've already been conquered mm. that was a different country once now it's a territory part of Vire, and you saw the map in Oberon's castle showed that that was a completely sovereign nation, just like Silverscale. Not anymore. But they heed your warning and assure you that as soon as they've sold what they've brought, they'll go back home. Do they say anything about Vire, or... What do you ask? What do you know about Queen Saphira and the capital... They, they know Sephira's name. They call her the Snake Queen. They share all kinds of rumors with you. That she's a demon, that she's monstrous, that she's dead, even. And Ira, under his breath, is like, <laughs> not yet. <laughs> <laughs> they, they tell you that Sephira's mother died young. And that Saphira's mother had three siblings that all died young, too. And that Saphira's grandmother lived the longest. And that it is most intelligent people's opinion that they're all killing each other. Huh. That seems to be their perception of Saphira and the crown. Okay. So, Ira. Tell me about your level up, and then I will tell you the last place the compass takes you. Well, what do you want to know? <laughs> tell, tell me the highlights. Yeah. So Ira, now at level seven, his AC went up a point. Just one? Yeah, because of his, his armor changed. So with the mithril shirt, it's 17. Okay, what else went up? So Ira's hit points went up quite a bit. They were 27, and now they're 44, and that's because he developed, I think, from that adventure that he went on in, like, five different biomes and <laughs> getting a chunk bit out of him in the Whispering Canyon. He built up a little bit of uh, toughness. 
So he gained a plus seven hit points on top of what he went up just naturally. You took the feat toughness. Yes. And I think that's very easy to explain, not just using this interlude, but also using the fact that like you were in Sosalia and Sanguine Silvis being attacked by werewolves. Yeah. <laughs> you have seen some shit. It would be impossible to go through what Ira has been through and not become more tough. Yeah. He was a little squishy before, but now he's a little battle-worn. Yeah, you are certainly looking more battle-worn. Mm -hmm. He also learned a few new spells, I think, while he was on his merry way. He learned Grease, mm -hmm. which is a Grease spell covers a solid surface with a layer of slippery grease. <laughs> I feel that this spell will be used to great comedic effect. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. A level two spell he learned is Path of Glory, which creates an expanding glow that heals allies within it for one hit point. Okay. Area heal. Area heal. And he also got access to level three spells. So he learned Invisibility Sphere from Samara. I also learned Silence. Mm -hmm. And then the other level three spell he learned is Purging Finale, which removes one negative effect to one living creature. Okay, so new spells you learned, Grease, Path of Glory, Silence, and Invisibility Sphere, both of which you learned from Samara, and Purging Finale. Suggestion is what you learned from Mia. Toughness you just got from running all over Vire. And then what you learned from the Lion Folk can't necessarily be summarized in one of these spells. It's more of a the strength of the emotional performance element, which I think is just part of how your performances get better, generally. Okay. So that's your level up. That is, that's where you're sitting now. These are all the new powers that you possess. You follow the Seeker's Pendant in the capital city, right? After you part from your new friends. Yeah. The Seeker's Pendant leads you through the capital to the south end, where you have never been. I think it's evening by the time you're walking through town. And you find yourself in what you think might be the seediest part of town. You follow the pendant to a dive bar. Nice. And the sign hanging outside reads, The Crooked Cow. Uh-huh. Do you go inside? Yeah, I think, I think he goes in. You, you enter this bar. And you look at where the compass is pointing. And you find Reva. I was about to say, is it fucking Reva? You find Reva. Four empty glasses beside her. <laughs> face down in a bowl of peanuts. <laughs> Ira walks up to Reva and gives her a really good slap on the back to wake her up. 